North Mollywood. I'm Alex Papademus, and sitting across the table from me, the ringmaster of the North Mollywood Cat Circus, Molly Lambert. Hey, everybody. Molly, we don't always hang out on the weekends, but when we do... We go to a cat circus. That's basically it. Yeah, that's pretty much... We wait for cat circuses to come to town. I want to. I want to actually first thank uh, Mukta Mohan, our producer, who's sitting right here. This was entirely through her. That's how we found out about the Acro Cats. I was not familiar with their work. I don't know if you were. Uh, you seem like someone who might be. Who might? I have. may have had the Acro Cats on my whiteboard as a planned activity already, <laughs> but I don't know that I actually would have gotten it together to go had it not been for the additional push from my coworkers that wanted to go. And I'm so glad we went because it was the most amazing show I've ever seen in my entire life. I really felt that way, too. I, I mean, I guess we should explain what it is, but it's a cat circus. It's a circus. It's all cats. It's a cat circus. It yeah. says, there was a big poster when you walk in that said, not a hoax. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always good and when you get to the event. It's, it tells you that. But they're also, they're also, they warn you ahead of time that the, some of the performers may get off stage and run through the crowd. That that's something they're accustomed to. It's normal. They're, it happened and, a few times, and it was very exciting every time. Did you have any performers running up to your, you and the Yeah, one of the cats did? came up to the nosebleeds and said hello was it was it wiki it was that um, guy with the the white feet yes yeah he was the best (laughs) he was the best um who was your favorite of the cat circus performers i like tuna because tuna did not give a fuck tuna's the the star of the cat circus so this is the acro cast it's a lady from chicago who has at least probably 20 cats she kept kind of talking about how there were lots of cats that aren't in the show. There are cats that aren't performers, but these are just the ones that are performers. Yeah, she was making a lot of uh, sort of self-deprecating jokes about being a cat lady as if every single person in the audience was not also a cat lady. Like, that was the weird part to me is that she was like, oh, you know me. And like, anybody's going to judge her in that room. It was also funny because you were like, there weren't that many kids there. Like, you brought your daughter (laughs) and she was one of the few kids there. And then everybody else was like, stoners in cat shirts on their way to the matinee of Keanu afterwards. <laughs> yes, you could have really double-billed it. Like, we, I, I saw Keanu the previous night. I kind of wish that I had waited just so that I could have made it entirely cat-centric. Well, day. your weekend was all... It was a serious cat weekend. It was a cat, cat stoner weekend. And the people were just as delighted as children, the, the just adults who were there. A cat pushes a shopping cart? Yes. Uh, rides on a walks on a, a rubber ball across the stage, and then the grand finale is the cat rock band, which is actually that was uh, Mukta's uh, that was the the pitch initially was about there being a cat rock band. That to me was uh, sort of anticlimactic after everything that we had witnessed up to that point. It was a little desultory, I think, as a performance. They weren't sure that they wanted to be performing. I, I mean, that's how the cats are the whole time. I was amazed that any cats did anything because I never expect cats to follow directions. And this made a good point that you could maybe teach cats to do things. They just have to really want to. <laughs> These were the most trained cats I'd ever yeah, seen. Yeah, I didn't know you could train cats. Even Did to you? this point, yeah. they were still kind of like, eh, I'm not going to do that half the time. <laughs> half the time, they're like, nah, not today. No, they'd like forget in the middle. They'd see something else and be like, mm, over there, I'm going to go instead. 
And sometimes they'd come out and just get scared and run back to their little their little hiding hole. And that was cute, too. Nobody was ever disappointed. Everybody was just like, we want the cats to be happy. I felt like you really identified with Buggles. Buggles was my favorite. Buggles was a little a little black cat that had a little collar that looked kind of like a tomato leaf. Buggles kind of looked like a little tiny cute tomato. And she talked a lot about how Buggles just like does one thing and doesn't interact with the other cats. And the one thing that it does, it's very good at. And then it stands on a podium with its cute little collar. And it, yeah, I just I identified with Buggles, I think. Thought Buggles doesn't want to be like the, the main star. They want to just like hang in the back and then come out and do their bit. And, uh, you know, all the cats are stars. Molly, if you'd like to watch the rest of this podcast be taped from a, 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 the upper corner of the room, there, it's really it's cool. If you want to climb that podium and just hang out, it's it's fine. You can chime in. Uh, the cat rock band also, I think you're kind of underselling it. It was a bunch of cats playing instruments. <laughs> it was a bunch of cats draped across instruments and occasionally. I mean, Tuna plays a cowbell, which is in the cat right in the cat's kind yeah, of. Tuna zone. really plays the cowbell. Yeah, there's, Tuna there's is something that you can press on that makes the cowbell go. And the other cats that are in the band are like not really part of the rest of the show. They just kind of come out to play in the band and they are presumably hanging out in the green room drinking up until then. But I just loved how chaotic it was. It was like uh, avant-garde jazz in a great way. I don't know what I expected. I guess I expected that they were going to like play a backing track and the cats would sort of like pretend to play instruments while some music played, but it was really like, no, these cats are improvising music and it is very improvisational and good and the kind of thing I enjoy. I liked it a lot. Uh, have you ever seen that video of the birds landing on the plugged in electric guitar? No. That's a very beautiful video of animals improvising. There's, I guess this is, that's what I wanted out of the rock cats, but I'm just, right. I'm just, you know, I'm a, I'm a former professional rock critic. So I sat in the audience <laughs> being like, Oh, this is pedestrian. Have you seen the cat who plays the theremin? No. Oh, that's the best that's thing in the world. That's perfect for a cat. It is. Cause you just get the cat. You just put like a toy over it. So the cat like moves its arms around and then that's how you play the theremin. So that must drive them crazy, though. That must be like the <laughs> auditory equivalent of that flashlight. Like, where does that sound coming from? I was driving my cats crazy yesterday because I was watching a documentary about cats and I projected it. But then all the sound was coming out of the speakers. So they were just like running over to the speakers. Like, where are those other cats? They're behind here. I'm going to find them. And it was driving them insane. It was kind of mean of me, except it was also adorable. Much like the cat circus. I will say also the cat circus is the only live event I've been to recently where you can come up after the show and pet the band. It was exactly like the male strip club I went to where at the end of the show they're like, and now come on stage and like touch the performers. Pick one that you like the most and go touch them. And you could leave tips in their collars, also much like the male strip club. Yes. It was like they were encouraging you to like fold up dollar bills and put them in the collar, which people did. Yeah, well, they were well worth it. Dollar bills at least, if not fives or tens, something like that. So uh, the Acro Cats coming to your town, going to party it down. Definitely do that if you have the opportunity. Yeah, it is the best live show anyone's ever seen. Speaking of performers who were great when they remembered the obligations that came with doing a live show, 
One of the best rock books of the year is Bob Mayer's Trouble Boys, the true story of the replacements. Bob Mayer is here with us to talk about it today. Thank you for having me. We also have Jessica Hopper, music editor of MTV News on the far side of the table. Hey, Jessica. What's up, guys? Bob, you've just listened to us explain the idea of the cat circus and what goes on at a cat circus. Do you hear any parallels as someone who spent a lot of time thinking about the replacements with what it must have been like? A lot, almost the same, except there was nobody in the band named Buggles. But otherwise very similar in terms of uh, you know the interaction with the audience, uh, the petting, the uh, placing of dollar bills under their collars, all that sort of reminiscent no but uh yeah i mean it's funny that the expression hurting cats uh, certainly applies to the replacements i guess there's the notion that the two worst jobs in rock and roll in the 80s were road manager for the pogues and the replacements and that probably is true but yeah you know it, it was kind of that thing of the idea that you can't train cats and can't get them to perform when you want and that certainly holds with the replacements the kind of their thing was uh, whenever they were expected to or required to perform well that was almost a sure bet that they wouldn't so i guess they were cat-like feline in that sense it's an amazing like running gag in this book almost i mean it's 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 almost stops being funny after a while because right. it's so actively self-destructive but whenever there is a, it's as if they they make a concerted effort to not make a concerted effort when it's like a moment when it would, might behoove them to do so well and then the the thing that always happens is the next night you know if it was like in 84 when they were doing their big label showcase for CBGBs when all the labels were there, that's when they decided, okay, we're just going to play covers drunkenly for two hours and run everybody out. And then two nights later, they played Irving Plaza, which is by generally consensus the best show they ever played. And that's where Seymour Stein happened to see them and decided to sign them on the spot. So in that case, it kind of worked out for them. But um, it was always sort of a thing with them of in those moments and generally the way they conducted their career was to sort of test everyone, drive as many people away, and whoever came back or was left standing, that's generally who they ended up working with, which it's not exactly the best way to handle your career, but that's the that's the way they chose to do it. You gotta haze everyone out. Yeah, that's I mean it sort of was it sort of was a hazing ritual. Anybody who worked with them from managers, certainly producers, um, A and R men and the labels even to an extent. It was a constant hazing process. Uh, we wanted to have you on. This is an amazing book. This is uh, one of the, the best rock books I've read in a while. And I am a huge Replacements fan, and yet I learned a lot. And I think you, you, you sort of shatter a bunch of myths in here and a bunch of uh, received ideas about this band. I tried to do that. I think that wasn't, I didn't know going in whether it was going to be sort of me adding to the myth or deconstructing it. And I think it's somewhere in between, you know, some of the most ridiculous things, the most outrageous things that I thought for sure were made up actually turned out to be true. Uh, and then some of the other things had been sort of distorted and embellished uh, over time. But, but yeah, I mean, the, that's, that was for all the years I spent doing this and I thought it would take two years it ended up taking like seven almost eight i learned that uh, you know the stories ran both ways it was sort of some of it was uh, it was puncturing the myth and some of it was adding to it i think what was the most ridiculous thing that turned out to be true hmm the most ridiculous thing that turned out to be true well the, the thing that everybody sort of gets uh, 
bothered about is the fact that the band, or at least Paul and Tommy, would burn their per diems. They used to gamble it away, and I guess the sort of rush of losing their money gambling wasn't quite enough, so at certain points they would just burn their money. To what end, I, I haven't quite yet figured out, but uh, some some symbolic uh, elements there, some bonding uh, ritual. But but yeah, I mean, there was, there was things that, you know, that sound like somebody says oh yeah they burned their per diems you'd think that was absolutely false or made up but it turned out that was that was true also sometimes they would if they checked into hotels and you know their rooms weren't ready or the hotel you know clerk was being sort of problematic they would they would take a $20 bill and just start lighting $20 bills in front of the hotel and then a room would magically sort of appear I don't think hotel clerks tend to like that sort of behavior at the front (laughs) desk Disrespect for legal tender. That's right. Probably illegal, yeah. Yes, but technically, right? It's probably illegal to deface money in that way. It's certainly immoral. <laughs> Bob, when you're talking about uh, how important loyalty was to the replacements and, and how much they tried to constantly test that, that actually makes me think of so much of what we've read about Prince this week. Mm. And then that just made me think, is that a particular... Minneapolitan quality. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think so. I-, I think there's a lot of parallels between the, the two groups, even though, or you know, between Prince and the Replacements. Um, Westenberg actually talks about it in the book. He, he talks about the sense of showmanship. Uh, strangely enough, he described kind of how sort of cold sometimes or uh, non-responsive Minneapolis crowds could be, and that sort of produces a, a, a kind of opposite reaction in terms of showmanship. And you saw it with Prince, and I think you saw a different kind of showmanship with the replacements. And I think there was a trust issue there. I mean, the replacements were among, I mean, of the bands I've written about and artists that I've I've kind of uh, focused on over the years. They they were certainly the least trusting group. They were paranoid about bootlegging. Certainly Paul was. Um, They had a lot of issues, I think, with the industry in the same way that Prince did. I think Prince was a little more proactive and understood better uh, and his own power and and that kind of stuff. But I think fundamentally that kind of mistrust comes from the same place. And I think it is kind of rooted in a little bit of a regional identity for sure. Had you spent much time with them prior to? I know that you had a relationship with Westerberg. Well, nothing like I would spend. I, I sort of knew them Casually, just in the course of being a music critic, I'd interviewed him a couple times on the phone. And then in about 10, 12 years ago, I went up and did my first face-to-face interview with Westerberg. And he was in an interesting place. His father had just passed and his own kid was growing up. And we just sat outside this coffee shop by his house and talked for like two hours. And he was different than I would have ever expected or that I had read in any interview. And so that was kind of interesting. I thought, well, this guy, is, he's not putting on an act or being just cynical or you know, dismissive or funny or, you know, all the things you kind of associate with him. He was being very real and genuine. And I thought, well, maybe there's a way to kind of get to their story if he's going to be like this. And fortunately, it would take a few more years before we got to the book. Our our relationship kind of carried on like that. Sometimes I would be with Tommy. I remember we were doing some interviews, bar hopping in Memphis, doing interviews, and I caught him outside on the phone and he was calling Paul saying, what have you gotten me into? You know, so there was a, there was a lot of calls and back and forth sort of when I, my head was turned between each other. So, and sometimes I know Paul would leave him messages of saying things like, oh yeah, let's take this kid for a ride or whatever, you know, there was a lot of that, I think the whole way through until, you know, after, after a certain amount of years, they kind of came to trust me as much as they trust anybody. Did you burn money with them? As I a didn't sign burn money. No, no. I, I think they were both past that, that period, <laughs> that stage, but, um, but yeah, I, I did. I didn't drink with Paul because he wasn't drinking. I did drink with Tommy, or tried to, uh, keeping up with him as 
No joke. He's a professional. He's been doing it a long time. But, you know, you kind of feel obligated to go round for round and you're doing interviews. But uh, I, I didn't I didn't fare too well the next day. So. Right. How, yeah, how are those transcripts? Yeah, the, my, my questions became less sharp as the <laughs> evening wore on uh, in a couple instances, but uh, I, I managed to get you know what I needed out of them. So. Yeah, the high-functioning uh, rock star interview subject is always, is always dangerous. The highest, yeah, in his case. I have a question for you. Yes. So you, you and I had some different conversations about different things that were, um, you know, you went so deep into whatever avenues of research and listened to like every single live show bootleg that Pretty you much. possibly could and all of this. Um, but you, you went into, you said there was a, like a Warner Brothers vault and you were saying that there was like things that you were watching and yeah. learning from there. What did you, what did you find there? What are the, the most remarkable, you know, unchronicled or lost artifacts of well, their storied career be it like literally an artifact or some song you heard or something like that well, somebody just told me uh westerberg's former wife his first wife found and was going to send back to peter jesperson twin tone founder the original stamp from stink somehow she had you know that they stamped all the covers with so that's an actual physical thing but i would say probably one of the more interesting chapters and it's almost a chapter in the book was in 88 the replacements uh, came out here and made don't tell a soul their third major label album it was the first time they worked out in california because they had sort of tried to make the record in bearsville and that was a whole other disaster they were but very anti-la that they was were very much Paul, because there was there was really a i mean la at that time i think they really associated it with hair metal hair metal and also i think you know Selling the company out. was based out here <laughs> but they came and they worked at Cherokee Studios, not far from where we're sitting. And uh, one night they got together with Tom Waits, uh, a mutual friend, was working with Waits. And, and Waits had kind of been a fan, had seen them play the previous year. And and Paul actually liked Tom. I mean, he Westenberg was not one to sort of be a fan of people or acknowledge his fandom, but he did with Waits. And so they all got together one night and recorded at uh, Cherokee and as the story goes Waits was there with his wife he was sort of on his best behavior and they were listening to tracks in the studio and then I guess his wife got tired and said oh just take a cab home you you know you hang out and apparently as soon as she left the room he sort of grabbed the bottle of Jack Daniels and sort of became Tom Waits and then they spent the next three four hours recording covers including um, Don't Worry Baby by the Beach Boys I think if you can imagine Tom Waits Paul Westbrook and Tommy Simpson sitting there singing and they were sure doing... sure the harmonies were just perfect. Yeah, they nailed it. And Play With Fire. So there's a tape of that. Some of that, uh, they did one song that came out, uh, Date to Church uh, with Waits playing organ and, and barking in the background. But there's a there's another hour, I would say, of, of that kind of stuff. I don't know how releasable it is, but that's a definitely... You've heard it? I have heard it, yeah. Some of it, some of it came out on... Westerberg did this weird oral collage called 49 Minutes of Your Life about seven, eight years ago. It was just like new songs, old songs little bits it was almost like you're flipping through the dials and there were little bits of the weights thing sprinkled in that but but there's an actually more complete uh version of it so which is I like that tom weights is like the la ambassadors like come on guys you can be a dirtbag here <laughs> no one's gonna clean you up and make you wear a suit you can just live in a motel and the, the, the one thing in the book, being sort of in Hollywood, reminds me of the few Hollywood associations. Generally, they did try and stay away from that. But at one point, um, there was talk of 
the replacements starring in the sequel to Rock and Roll High School, um, which which God, was only... which was going to be made, and you know they were going to do have the Ramones kind of role, and the Ramones were going to make a cameo, and the, it was going to come out on Sarkis. None of that happened, and it became just this weird vehicle for um, what's the guy's name? Who the the, the two kids? One of the Corys, uh, uh, Corey Fame, I think, ended up starring in what that was, and the replacements A and R man wisely put the kibosh on that because he could see where that film was going, but. Um, but what if that had been their Purple Rain? Yes, what if it had? What if they've got Heather's? Heather's is the replacements movie. You know, Daniel Waters, who wrote that, uh, who wrote Heather's, he was actually working in a video store here and discovered the replacements later. But he said, you know, listening to the replacements, it kind of took me back to that place of high school. And so, even though I mean, Heather's was a very low budgeted movie, and I guess they didn't think Warner Brothers would give them the you know music to use, the replacements music to use at a real price. But he said, you know, there's a bunch of lines in there, and of course, it's called Westerberg High. Although Westerberg is spelled with a U, because apparently some studio executive thought the name Westerberg was too Jewish for a Midwestern high school, even though Paul is Scandinavian and Norwe- you know Swedish and, and Norwegian. I'm sure it was a yeah, <laughs> but uh, but uh, a memo. I thought you were going to say because Westerberg with a U makes it sound like a place, right? Maybe that's like what it's it was. The but of but he did he did say well, Westerberg's too Jewish for a Midwestern high school. And it's like well, he's Swedish, but anyway, that's amazing. Um, and then, of course, uh, the the other funny thing of that is I spent a couple years tracking down Winona Ryder to talk for the book, which I did successfully, because she was a prominent fan and she was involved in the Heather's part, and there was other stories later on. But, but the, the memory that I have is when I finally, she finally, we'd been sort of emailing and texting, and I, one time I was out here visiting, we were supposed to get together, and then we had a two-hour conversation after I'd come back from a Lakers game where I was very drunk, and I was trying to, like sort of make her feel better about participating in this. Anyway, finally she called me up <laughs> when I was back in Memphis and she's like, I'm ready to do this. And she's calling me as I'm drive in the drive through at Wendy's getting a Frosty. <laughs> so it was sort of a weird moment, you know, having Winona on one hand and somebody. And you're like, hold on, I have to find $3 and two cents <laughs> but, um, and a straw spoon. <laughs> the really, <laughs> The really interesting thing that she said that it didn't end up in the book is she would play um, she loved the replacements music. She would play it to sort of psych herself up for scenes, you know, ballads for the emotional scenes and rockers for the angry scenes, as she put it. But there was a point where she was on set with Arthur Miller, and she would like play Arthur Miller replacement songs, if you can imagine that. And, and the ones that were too loud, she would just like read the lyrics. And apparently, Arthur Miller was very impressed with this. So it's like this weird idea of the replacements music, like kind of getting in the hands or the ears of one of the greatest playwrights, one of the greatest composers. And I think she said she told Paul that. And he was like, yeah. And he kind of didn't get it. <laughs> well, and also that she, that she was, uh, you know, ambassadorial. I mean, I think. She was, yeah. And, it's, and it, it is like the nature of being a replacements fan. I think there is, uh, you know, I think you and I have talked about this, that there was, there's never someone who's just like a casual replacements fan. You're like right. very much a true believer. And it doesn't surprise me at all that someone would be like, Evangelical and trying to play like, cr- like truly crusty old white guys. Yeah. Um, no shade, Arthur Miller, uh, but you know, be like, you gotta hear this band, man. You know, like. And he was saying, I think I may have this wrong, but she was saying like, oh, I, 
like he, she played him waitress in the sky and he was like oh that reminds me of the time me and Marilyn were on a plane going to you know Rome or something like you know just like uh, <laughs> no she, she was telling me this stuff I was like wow this is really weird um, the other funny thing she told me which I never checked out she did a movie with Robert Downey Jr. called 1969 it was kind of like a you know direct video thing but she said she had seen the replacements once with Bob and Bob was doing this thing which he did sometimes where he like kept blowing the solo blowing the solo and then finally got it right and then he'd pat himself on the back <laughs> and apparently she told Robert Downey Jr. about that and and he sort of somehow incorporated that move into the film so because um, so. he could probably understand yeah he could probably like to blow the, the, blow the, the monologue the, and then the, get it right ghost ghost like legacy of uh, Bob Stinson through popular culture yeah it sort of pops up here and there you know you know Bob was with them for the first major label album and then he was gone and after that their world got bigger you know they were on warner brothers there was more attempts to make them a commercial success there was more people producers and our men involved and so you know the replacements as an insular group mostly in twin tone and during those minneapolis years is one thing but once you sort of start having the replacements butt up against all these other worlds whether it's record companies or hollywood or you know professional music people that's when it kind of gets interesting and and their behavior in some ways became more extreme after Bob left, uh, partly as a reaction to Bob and partly just the sort of devolution of their own sort of spirit and sense as a band. So, so yeah, it, it, I, that's the funny thing for me because I think most Replacements fans tend to not like or be as uh, hot on the last two records. But really in researching and writing the book, the, the, the end period of the Replacements is the craziest period in some ways. Yeah, there's a, there's a great story about uh, John Cale, and they bring in John Cale to uh, right. do the play the uh, viola on "Sadly Beautiful" from right. uh, "All Shook Down," and he needs a pillow for the fiddle because has to rest the viola on something, and they all they have to give him is their nasty beer rag from the floor, <laughs> <laughs> and it's such a beautiful song. And you listen to that; I've been listening to that. It's the first replacements record I ever heard. It's the one that I've been listening to the longest, and like I've always really liked that song. And now I have this image in my head of John Cale being like, oh, just <laughs> making this face, yeah, <laughs> just almost <laughs> passing out from like just gnarly beer rag fumes. And if there's something, if there's anything that more exemplifies the replacements, I think it's the combination of those two things it's that beautiful sad song and the idea of john cale almost yakking in the studio because there's a beer rag on his shoulder <laughs> bob Mayer, thank you very much the book is trouble boys the true story of the replacements yes sir are you on tour right now, blazing a, a trail of uh, self-destruction across this great nation? Something like that. Um, yeah, I've got a bunch of dates coming up. May 21 in Chicago at the Hideout, and then I'm heading to the East Coast, uh, Boston, on May 31st with Dave Minahan, who is uh, the replacement replacements on this reunion tour. He was their guitarist. Um, then I'm doing uh, Philly, Hoboken, New York City with John Worcester of Super Chunk and the Bob Mould Band. We're going to do a Q&A, and then... Uh, then I'll be back here in Los Angeles for an appearance at Book Soup on June 12th, but people can check all that stuff out at replacementsbook.com if they want to see where I'll be. Will you burn your per diems on all of those dates? Can we, Actually, we are doing the Chicago date together. Can we... We can burn money. Can we burn some money? I'll bring some, I'll bring some ones. Or burn? maybe... Some, I have some euros we left over. We can burn over. the book. Whoa, no. Whoa, 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 Molly, whoa, guys, whoa. Feel it. Just in. You know, God. As long as there are no f undercover federal agents <laughs> at the hideout, I think we'll be okay to burn whatever we want. You guys just got me all excited to burn stuff. <laughs> Jessica Hopper, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for already being here and coming into this room from the other room. I, I was just busy burning my dollars. <laughs> 
Molly Lambert, thanks for coming on the podcast that bears your name. Oh, yeah. I'm just here like buggles in the back, just hanging, hanging on my platform. May I pet you? Yes, you may at the end of the show. North Mollywood is a production of the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV News and MTV Podcasts. You can subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.